So I want to take this opportunity to be absolutely clear. America is not pursuing protectionist trade policies, and any intimation that these programs and legislation are protectionist could not be further from the truth. Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. I'm Scotty Greenwood at the Canadian American Business Council, and I'm joined here in his office with Christopher Sands of the Woodrow Wilson Center. Hey, Chris. Hi, Scotty. Welcome to the office. Thank you. Thank you for hosting. Someday people will need to come into this office because I'm just looking around and it's a it's a monument to the Canada-U.S. relationship. And (laughs) there's such cool paraphernalia in here, y'all. You should see it. Uh, Historic. Current, kitschy, campy, academic, it's all here. It's really cool. Yeah, it's a knickknack special. It's a, <laughs> sort, of, sort of like a consignment shop on Canusa Street. You can find anything. That's right. I'm Collectors actually items. I'm looking at a curing machine, K cups that are Tim Hortons, thinking, okay, it's about it's it's coffee o'clock. Anyway, so we are here in your office because you just walked off stage um interviewing the honorable David Cohen, the US ambassador to Canada. And so this will be a, one of those special editions where we listen in mm-hmm. to a dialogue that you had just just a few moments ago. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's terrific to have a check-in with not just former electeds, but also with people that are currently in the job. So um, so we're going to listen in to your conversation with the Honorable David L. Cohen, the current U.S. Ambassador to Canada appointed by President Biden. All right. Well, you'll hear my intro next. So uh, let's see what we think of it. Here we go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome virtually and in real life uh, here to the Woodrow Wilson Center. My name is Christopher Sands, and I direct the Canada Institute here at Woodrow Wilson. And I couldn't be more pleased to be able to introduce to you the United States Ambassador to Canada, David L. Cohen. Some of you will know him from his uh, very distinguished career of public service and uh, and in corporate America, uh, Vice President uh, at Comcast, and importantly, Chief of Staff to Edward Rendell, governor of Pennsylvania, and before that, mayor of Philadelphia. A lot of great things happened in the city of brotherly love because of David L. Cohen. So we're really glad to have him here. Um, I'm going to introduce, let him take the podium now, and then we'll have a little conversation after that. Ambassador Cohen. So good afternoon, everyone. And thanks, Chris, for that very nice introduction. While I've been pleased and honored to participate in multiple Wilson Center Canada Institute events virtually. Um, It's great to be here with you in person today, and it's great to see that at least some of you actually showed up in person um, as we uh, continue the transition of coming back to work from the pandemic. The Canada Institute holds itself out as the only public policy forum in the world dedicated to exploring the entire range of U.S.-Canada relations and in a nonpartisan and informed manner. And I agree with that characterization. So I'm particularly gratified to be invited here today to address one of the most common questions that I receive as U.S. Ambassador to Canada. And that's from elected officials, reporters, regular people on the street. What is the state of the relationship between the United States and Canada today. 
Well, I'm pleased to say that I think the state of our country's relationship is truly excellent. It is at a real high water mark. The strength of the relationship and the closeness of our partnership in the trade, defense, and intelligence contexts, all bound together by our shared values and so many friendships by individual citizens living on both sides of the border, was really driven home by President Biden's extraordinary visit to Canada in late March. On multiple occasions during his visit, President Biden highlighted that, as the closest of friends and allies, the United States and Canada are committed to making life better for people in both our countries and building a more free, equitable, secure, and prosperous world. That's a pretty good credo for any two countries in the world to subscribe to. By way of example, in his address to Parliament, the President spoke about what the future holds for our partnership. He said, and I quote, it's a future built on shared prosperity, where Canada and the United States continue to anchor the most competitive, prosperous, and resilient economic region in the world, unquote. Further, in their closing joint statement, President Biden and Prime Minister Trudeau pledged to work together to deepen our economic integration and create good jobs while catalyzing clean energy. So notwithstanding the size and strength of the trade relationship between the United States and Canada, there has been some noise in Canada about alleged protectionist policies of the United States, probably in part a vestige of past administration policies and probably exacerbated by a recent series of legislative packages and programs that have attracted a lot of attention because of their boldness. And I mean boldness, but you can also say their size. These include the Inflation Reduction Act, or as we call it, the IRA, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act, the Chips and Science Act, modifications to the Defense Procurement Act, and a number of other programs. Now, I've said that I think this view is the product of largely uninformed opinion. That's me being diplomatic, and I'm not going to go any further than that today either. <laughs> so I want to take this opportunity to be clear, to be absolutely clear. America is not pursuing protectionist trade policies and any intimation that these programs and legislation are protectionist could not be further from the truth. In fact, these incentive-laden programs will help to build integrated supply chains and make North America more competitive. Signed into law by President Biden last year, the IRA contains the biggest investment in history to curb emissions, promote clean energy technologies, advance environmental justice, and bolster climate adaptation efforts. That is why Deputy Prime Minister Freeland called the IRA, and I'm quoting, a truly historic, once-in-a-generation economic moment. And that is why in the joint statement following the President's visit to Canada last month, President Biden and Prime Minister Trudeau touted 
the IRA, embraced it as a, and I quote again, foundational element in leading the clean energy future. That's what the IRA is. It's not about protectionism. The fact of the matter is that the collection of programs capped off by the IRA presents incredible opportunities for the United States and for Canada and Mexico to open new avenues for trade and manufacturing in clean energy and to strengthen regional supply chains, which are the lifeblood of our economies. So today, I'd like to take the opportunity in a thoughtful way befitting of the Canada Institute to put to bed the inaccurate rhetoric that the United States is being protectionist in adopting policies and programs that will be harmful to Canada in particular. I'm asked all the time while the United States can adopt a buy North America policy instead of buy America. And the simple answer is that that is exactly what we are doing. We are furthering North American prosperity, North American competitiveness, development of North American businesses, and, and, and creating an allyship for taking on climate change. So I'm a lawyer, and I can't quite get away from my legal roots, so I apologize, because I'm going to take this issue on with seven points. And I know the rule is you should never have more than three, because no one can remember more than three, but I can't do this in three points. So you'll have to listen to seven points. First, let's not bury the lead. Every day, 2.65 billion US dollars in trade, that's 3.25 billion in Canadian dollars, crosses between Canada and the United States. 2.65 billion dollars a day, generating millions of jobs on both sides of the border. Our trade between Canada and the United States grew 19% year over year in 2022. Almost all of that is free trade, not subject to any restrictions. That makes Canada the number one trading partner for the United States, and it makes the United States the number one trading partner for Canada. Our trade relationship, in short, is the envy of the world. More than 30 states count Canada as their largest export partner. And all of that is the case, even under current Buy America and Buy American standards and policies. That does not sound very protectionist to me, not even close. Second, let's remember that Buy American is not new. Buy American provisions have been a part of federal infrastructure policy and programs in the United States since 1933. This didn't come along a year ago, two years ago. They've been around since 1933. Third, it is critical to understand just how limited Buy American provisions are. Those provisions apply only to federal government public procurement. They do not relate at all to private commercial trade. And in this sense, the United States is no different than other countries where the playing field is sometimes tilted toward domestic businesses, including Canada, I might add, which has by Canada provisions littered through federal procurement policies. So let me quantify this for you a little because the numbers 
really drive this point home. Let's focus, if we can, on the bipartisan infrastructure law, one of the central elements of that package of programs I discussed. That will be the source of the bulk of United States infrastructure investment in the coming years. And it includes Buy American provisions and the same provisions that the President spoke of in his State of the Union address. That act includes $1.2 trillion in spending generally over five years, all of it subject to Buy American provisions. That's a couple hundred billion dollars per year in federal government infrastructure projects. On the other side of the scale, the U.S. economy, our GDP, is over $25 trillion. So the total federal procurement spending in the infrastructure law makes up less than 1% of the U.S. economy per year. So let's be clear, at the most, we're talking about less than 1% of the overall trade economy that is subject to Buy American provisions under the bipartisan infrastructure law. Contrast that to the value of U.S.-Canadian trade in goods in 2022, which was more than three times the approximate annual spending under the bipartisan infrastructure law. The total here, which I guess you could call the denominator, dwarfs the dollars that are subject to Buy America or Buy American provisions. But even these numbers assume that Canadian businesses are competing for 100% of the opportunities available under these programs, including the IRA. And that's just not true. An insightful analysis by CBC News disclosed that among the top 25 products exported by Canada to the United States, only two of them, lumber and aluminum, are even covered by Buy American provisions. And in the case of lumber, the Canadian lumber industry has effectively moved to avoid the application of Buy American provisions by buying mills inside the United States to which Buy American provisions will not apply. Fourth, too often ignored are the exceptions and waivers that are built into Buy American and historically negotiated for the benefit of Canada. For example, written into Buy American regulations is a provision that permits waivers when Buying American costs 25% more or hurts the public interest. That's the standard, by the way, hurts the public interest. And the granddaddy of all waivers, while not related to Buy American, because it applies to an incentive program, has already been written into the IRA to benefit Canada, and that is the extension of the EV consumer tax credit to automobiles assembled or manufactured in Canada. So now electric vehicles assembled or manufactured in Canada, or Mexico for that matter, are eligible for those tax credits. As President Biden has pointed out, there's a simple reason for this, recognizing how interconnected our auto industries and our workers are. So given the closeness of our relationship, Canada and the United States talk continuously on these issues. But to fix a problem requires identification of the problem and what harm is being done. Can't just say, 
by American hurts Canada. How does it hurt Canada? What industry is being hurt? What business is our Canadian companies not being permitted to bid for? Given the complexity of our trade relationship, this is not always easily done. But our history, including our IRA history with EV tax credits, makes me confident that we are capable of fixing anything substantial that needs fixing. Sixth, critics of the IRA and associated programs fail to acknowledge the eligibility of Canadian companies for funding and for tax credits under some of these programs. For example, President Biden has made $250 million of funding under the Defense Production Act available for U.S. and Canadian companies to mine and process critical minerals, with awards to be announced this spring or summer. And the United States has announced a further $50 million in DPA funding for U.S. and Canadian companies to develop advanced packaging for semiconductors and printed circuit boards. So I'm in Washington uh, this week for the Select USA conference. And talk about good timing. I met a company today at this conference. It's a company called LiCycle, L-I-Cycle. Um, it's a lithium recycling firm. And they were so proud to tell me that that company, a Canadian company, has been awarded $370 million under, by the Department of Energy to develop a new facility in Rochester, New York, to engage in their recycling program. Canadian company, Canadian employees applying for funding under that package of programs and getting $370 million to, um, to, de to develop that plant. And they, what were they, at, what were they at, the, at the summit for? To talk to us about other opportunities that they have under the IRA, under the Defense Production Act, to apply for U.S. funding to continue to build their business. They don't feel like they're being hurt by Buy American. I mean, Buy American didn't stop them from getting $370 million grant from the United States government. And they're not discouraged at all in applying for additional funding to support their lithium recycling business. So finally, we're, we're now at number seven. It's important to observe that advancing our investment in climate change objectives does not require the United States and Canada each to do everything. There can be a complementary approach. For example, on semiconductors, our countries can facilitate, facilitate production of semiconductors in the United States through several significant grants and projects, as have been done, as has been done in Arizona, um, Ohio, and New York. While Canada can emphasize advanced packaging, testing, and assembly as it is doing in conjunction with IBM and Bromont. In this way, the United States and Canada working together are developing a true North American semiconductor supply chain. And they don't necessarily need to take advantage of each other's incentive programs to do this. As Prime Minister Trudeau has noted, the more semiconductors that the United States manufactures, 
the more jobs will be created in Canada as those chips are assembled in Bromont, which is the largest such facility in North America. In short, a rising tide in the United States will lift boats in Canada as well. President Biden made it very clear when he was in Ottawa, our destinies are intertwined and they're inseparable, he said. Not because of the inevitability of geography, but because it's a choice, a choice we've made again and again. The president told Canadians that the United States chooses to link our future with Canada because we know that we'll find no better partner, no more reliable ally, and no more steady friend. Today, that future includes working together as friends and partners to combat the climate crisis by investing in clean energy technologies. In its 2023 budget, for example, we saw Canada increase investment in clean tech manufacturing, net zero power generation, and critical minerals, all of which work toward advancing our country's shared goals on climate change and energy security. As President Biden said in his address to Parliament, the IRA is a model for future cooperation. If you notice a certain repetitiveness of the words being used here, I want to assure you that's not accidental. That's actually what we're talking about. It's actually what we're trying to do. Cooperate, build together, complement each other's work. And our, our goal is to have both our nations investing at home to increase the strength of our industrial bases, making sure that products manufactured in North America are not only manufactured, but that they are the best of the world. The IRA will spur clean energy investments all over the world. It will grow the pie, not split it up. And that's why we were so pleased to see the new incentive programs in Canada's 2023 budget including a new clean technology manufacturing tax credit for investments in nuclear and renewable energy equipment manufacturing, grid-scale electrical energy storage equipment, net-zero emission vehicles, and electric vehicle battery components. These incentives, uh, I will argue, are not competitive with the United States. They are complementary designed to enable a like-minded nation like Canada to further accelerate its own clean energy transition economy. This is exactly what the United States hoped for in the IRA in trying to take on the capacity of unfriendly nations around the world in this space and erode the advantages principally of China, but of China and Russia in this space and it's already working. Now, if you'll indulge me one more time, I'd like to leave you with a final quote from President Biden's address to Parliament on March 24th. It's one that I feel really captures our partnership and our friendship. Canada and the United States can do big things. We stand together, do them together, rise together. We're going to write the future together. I promise you. I think those words capture the way the United States pursues the energy transition, our climate change objectives, and growing our trade relationship with Canada. 
It's not a matter of competition. It's not a matter of protectionism. It's a matter of working together to grow a North American economy. So thank you all for your attendance today. Chris, once again, thank you for hosting me, and I'm happy to take some questions. We'll, uh, we'll let you sit so we can ask, I can ask you questions in comfort. Thank you very much, Ambassador. Relative comfort. Relative comfort, yes. <laughs> Thank you very much. That was a really great, I couldn't have uh, worked it through better myself, just sort of laying out all of the pieces of the puzzle. And I, I want to kind of, um, I want to push you on a couple of things. And as you say, people talk in Canada and even in the U.S. about America First and Fortress America. And I just wonder, can we finally put that to bed? You think we, or is that just something that's going to be with us forever? People say it, but I don't see much evidence. So, look, one of my purposes of coming here, one of the reasons why I'm so appreciative, there actually is not much new in that speech. I mean, I've talked about pieces of it many times, but for whatever reason, it is a persistent theme of the way in which some Canadians talk about this relationship. And I, I hope it came across, I really don't think it's true. I don't think it's fair and I don't think it's true and I am appreciative of your giving me a platform that let me thoughtfully in the Canada Institute way <laughs> run through the litany that is designed to put that argument to rest. Well, and that's what I hope I hope we'll accomplish. Mm -hmm. I, I remember, you probably are old enough to remember when the slogan at NBC was, uh, if you haven't seen it, it's new to you. So if you haven't heard the argument, it's new to them. And right. I think you did a great job of putting it out there. Uh, another term that we are hearing a lot in relation to uh, the Biden administration's economic policy are terms like reshoring, nearshoring, friendshoring, allyshoring, lots of shoring. I, I haven't heard dinoshoring yet, but there are quite a few. <laughs> And they're being. Bigger dough, who dinosaur is. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> I got a, you got a lot of laughs. I Somebody knows who she is. <laughs> yes. Well, that's good. That's good. A sign we have our history. But um, but we, we use them somewhat interchangeably. And I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about whether these terms are when we're talking about shifting supply chains, whether that's uh, whether reshoring, nearshoring, like how would we describe what we're trying to do? Is it, is it just moving production around or is it growing the production capacity in general? So if it's just moving the production around, we're not accomplishing very much. Right. And I don't think that's the goal of either Canada or the United States. I think, I mean, I, I think these terms came from speeches made by Janet Yellen and Christopher Freeland. And I think the purpose of those speeches was designed really to address an issue that was first raised by Jake Sullivan, and that is the dangerous reliance on unfriendly companies for essential elements of our mm -hmm. supply chain. Um, and the point of the initial point of, of friendshoring, nearshoring is to the extent that we can own the supply chain from soup to nuts and not be reliant on China or Russia. For the supply chain, we will have more energy security and more energy reliability. It's, you're right, it's gotten very sloppy with the way in which people use the terms. I think, I think they sort of forget the history. It's not that, it's not that long a history. It's a lot more recent than Dinah Shore. Um, 
<laughs> and, and so I think when you do that, you do create some danger um, in, in obscuring what the point of the argument is, which is that for, I mean, the way I like to think about this is there's no doubt that we have multiple very top priorities, climate change, mm -hmm. um, the energy transition, I mean, the energy transition, um, and security, um, ensuring that we're getting all of the elements from the supply chain from like-minded and reliable partners. Mm -hmm. And I, this is not, a, this is not a, a call to take on China, but it is a call to see what we can do to own and control as much of our supply chain as we can. And I think that's what the IRA is all about. I think that's what the incentives that are in the 2023 budget in Canada are all about. Mm -hmm. And I think I'd rather focus on it in those terms than trying to tie it into a, to a catchphrase. Fair enough. Um, I'm all for a catchphrase when it works, but if it's not helpful, um, and I think in this case it isn't often helpful, it, it sends people in kind of strange corners of policymaking. Now, um, you're here in Washington to, to do the annual Select USA Investment Summit. That's always a, uh, a highlight in the annual calendar, thanks to our friends in the Department of Commerce that, that put that together here. One of the questions I think uh, people have when they're talking about Buy American is whether they're allowed to participate. And yet I remember when we were uh, negotiating the USMCA, even the Congress was willing to hear petitions about what should be on the negotiating agenda from Canadian business groups. And we've always been pretty open to Canadian participation. If, if you were taking a message beyond this, maybe your Select USA message for Canadian companies who are thinking there's a lot of opportunity in the U.S., we support the goals, maybe we have a technology we can bring it. Uh, how, how is the door really open? Uh, so the answer is absolutely yes. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate your suggestion, but that's what I've been doing in Select USA the last few days. Yeah. And it's what Gina Raimondo did at Select USA. These programs that have attracted so much attention are open to participation, certainly by Canadian companies. So take it one, uh, one bucket at a time. The Defense Production Act, right. which has a lot of money behind it, is explicitly by its terms and by the legislative language and history open to Canada as a domestic producer. Mm -hmm. So Defense Production Act, there's already been an announced intention to award grants under the Defense Production Act, and Canadian companies are just as eligible as United States companies to apply for those grants. So I can't, you can't say it more flatly than that. Um, the under under the um, bipartisan infrastructure law, mm. Canadian companies are free to compete for those contracts and have. That's mm. the oldest of these laws. They have competed and they have competed successfully. Mm -hmm. um, I referenced my new story in this space from today, which was the ability of a Canadian company to compete for De Department of Energy funding and get a $370 million grant. This is an all-Canadian company, headquartered yeah. in Canada. Right now, all Canadian employees, uh, they were getting the grant to build a facility, a lithium recycling 
facility in, in the United States. I'm in Rochester, but it's a Canadian company mm -hmm. with Canadian employees and Canadian executives. So we talked about that, that today. And under, and under the IRA, there are absolute opportunities for Canadian companies to compete for, for the incentives that exist under, um, under, un, under, under the IRA. So I'm, you know, I'm not, I don't want to pick a fight, and I don't want to, and I want to be unduly critical. But I think at some point, the burden has to be put on the people who are saying that these programs, these programs are, you know, tilt the playing field in, in the direction of the United States and are not fair to Canadian companies. They've got to be put to the explanation of why. Why do they say that? I mean, the Canadian companies are eligible to apply and to get these benefits in virtually every case. Yeah. And in fact, in the early days, Canadian companies have gotten grants and eligibility for these programs, and you referenced the strong relationship. Yeah. When I came here in December of 2021, the first big issue I was confronted with was the electric vehicle battery tax credit, in which Canada, or at the time it was available only to automobiles assembled and manufactured in the United States. Um, Canada, using a technical term, threw a hissy fit. <laughs> and they, this is the word that I was presented with. That provision yeah. poses an existential threat to our economy. So that got my attention. I mean, I don't think the United States wants to do anything to pose an existential threat to the Canadian economy. No. So I asked my team, you know, just out of curiosity, you know, what is the size of the electric vehicle production business in Canada? So as of 2021, as of 2022, by the way, mm -hmm. anyone know the number of electric vehicles that are manufactured or assembled in Canada that would not be eligible for this tax credit? Anyone want to hazard a guess? The number is zero. At the time, Canada did not manufacture a single, single passenger electric vehicle, which is what this tax credit applied to. Right. That would be an So I went to my friends in Canada. I said, look, I, you can make a lot of arguments here, but I'm struggling to understand how the inapplicability of a tax credit to a segment of your industry that currently produces no vehicles that are eligible to it is an existential threat to the entire Canadian economy. Now, there was a story, but it was a lot less jazzy than depriving our vehicles of the tax credit as an existential threat to our economy. And it is the Canadian automobile. The automobile economy is extremely important in Canada. There's a recognition that electric vehicles will play a larger and larger role in that economy. We need to get the private sector to invest in those types of plants in Canada. How are, they, how are we going to get them to invest when you've got this significant tax credit just across the border in the United States? So we won't be able to get the investment. We won't be able to transition to producing electric vehicles, which will defeat our climate change goals. 
and prevent arguably the second most important sector in our economy from developing. So I said, well, you know something, that's a fair argument. Why don't you use that argument? Well, you see, it takes three minutes to, to give, <laughs> and it's, it's not as catchy as existential threat. So they adjusted their advocacy in private in a very appropriate, a very good way. Mm -hmm. And now, Canadian and now vehicle electric vehicles manufactured or assembled in Canada are written in to the IRA as being eligible for the tax credit. So we've sort of taken the biggest issue that Canada identified <laughs> off the table. And all these elements are just evidence that there's no intent here to injure Canada. The intent here is to build a resilient, powerful, prosperous North American economy. Right. So now I'm going to turn the table slightly um, because we're, we're Americans and we're here. For American taxpayers who are, you know, listening in online or here in the room, it, it does sound good that we're doing nice things for Canadians, but a lot of people say, well, you know, what about the U.S.? The taxpayer is going to finance this. So how do you answer the concern, like that by trying to be helpful and not injure Canada, are we sending opportunities abroad, not at home, or is there a mutual benefit? Do Americans benefit when, when, when the best company wins? So the answer is there's an extremely strong mutual benefit. And I mm -hmm. quoted President Biden on this issue in my mm -hmm. remarks. And it all ties into the interconnected nature of the U.S. and Canadian economy. Mm -hmm. And the automobile industry is, is sort of exhibit A mm -hmm. of that interconnection. Um, a vehicle, an automobile, an electric vehicle manufactured in Canada actually will cross the border 10 times before it is completed. There are significant components in that vehicle that are manufactured in the United States by American workers. Um, and it does the United States no good to eviscerate the automobile industry in Canada. And it does us no good to compete against it because we're working together between components and batteries um, and design, the jobs on both sides of the border are being aided by these policies. So if, we're, I mean, I, again, you're always a victim of your past. Um, <laughs> one, of my, one of my previous jobs was chief of staff to the mayor of Philadelphia. And I remember there was a whole um, movement in the 90s. Um, it was actually led by a guy by the name of Bruce Katz. Um, who was um, an undersecretary at HUD, went on to be a, um, to, uh, be a leader in Bro at Brookings, yeah. and is actually now, he has some role in a Canadian university think oh. tank. Mm -hmm. um, and his argument and his pitch was that Philadelphia and cities do not compete against the suburbs of Philadelphia, or companies in New Jersey, or, or even companies in the southwestern United States. They're competing against regions around the world. That's mm -hmm. what the level of competition is. And I'm reminded, because the United States and Canada are not and should not be competing against each other. We're competing against 
we're competing against Europe to some extent, but we're really competing against China and Russia and authoritarian regimes. Mm -hmm. And so if you're a United States taxpayer, you want to be a fan of anything that increases the resiliency and the size and the impact of the United States economy and, and that results in the employment of more United States workers. And I will argue any day of the week that that requires a close collaborative relationship with Canada as a like-minded country and that together we're taking on other regions of the world, making the continent more competitive and more resilient. And that's why this is in very strongly the interest of United States taxpayers. Well said. Um, another question that comes back from my past, I grew up in Detroit and I remember the, uh, the 80s and early 90s, a lot of subsidy competition among states and provinces as they tried to land an auto plant or, or what have you. And I know some of that competition is good, but sometimes it, it, it really is a waste of time and money as people divert resources to try to compete for the, the golden uh, ticket if they can get that plant. Uh, how important now that the federal government in the U.S. and we've seen the Canadian government have started to take a very open architecture approach to incentivizing energy transition, how important is it for provinces and state governments to follow that lead and to be uh, open uh, to the to best competitors uh, versus reserving as much of their incentives for just what's local? Yeah, so I, I think that is a really good question, and it is a tricky question. Mm -hmm. I think the risk of successful incentive programs like the IRA and like the programs that were put in this budget is that they may become irresistible to provinces, and we need our policymakers to run these programs in the way in which I talk to them. Mm -hmm. way in which I talked about them. They shouldn't be viewed as competitive programs against the United States, and we should not be rooting for or hoping for a series of competitive incentive and grant programs from provinces, states, the United States, and Canada. But you can do that. That is a matter of administration of the programs. Mm -hmm. It is not a matter of the existence of the programs. You can, you can talk to each other. Um, this, is not a, this is not like two private sector companies discussing the structure of an arrangement, that they, two competing private sector companies discussing the structure of an arrangement that they're prepared to make with a supplier. That's an antitrust violation. Right. But two countries are permitted to coordinate their incentive programs mm -hmm. and to not allow them to devolve into useless competition where you're not advancing the interests of the continent. Mm -hmm. Right. So then another question that relates to that, and that is about workforce. We, talk, we, we hear this all the time when we do want to create jobs, but we also need specialized workers who know how to work in an assembly plant, how to uh, mine, extract critical minerals, and so on. How can, how can we take the next steps here to make sure that we have the workforce and the and trained workforce to be able to realize what the potential of these investments are? So I do think that workforce is rapidly becoming 
the most consequential potential impediment to economic growth in both Canada and the United States, and Canada may be ahead of the United States. Um, it is the, the availability of appropriately trained talent appears to be less in Canada than, than it is in the United States. And so there are no easy solutions to that either. Um, it's a matter of, it's a matter of um, improving training, um, improving the deployment of the workforce into places where it needs to be. Mm -hmm. um, but it is, it is a significant issue. I mean, Jim, I would say that issue came up 10 times in our presence today at the, mm -hmm. at the um, Select USA mm -hmm. um, Summit. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a major issue on the minds of, um, of these companies from all over the world. Mm -hmm. This isn't just a US or a Canada issue. Um, and there's no rocket science to solving this. You need to have strong job training. Mm -hmm. You need to reduce friction in employment and advertising of employment. Um, and so, but it, it, I think it is a big issue. Right now, I don't think it's retarding growth, but it's on the brink of retarding growth. Hmm. It, is, it is definitely something that we have a lot of young people in the room, and it's something we should think about. How do we help them to take advantage of these programs as well? Yep. I, I remember back um, during the George W. Bush presidency, I had a chance to talk with a former NDP leader in Canada, New Democratic Party leader, Jack Layton, and he was talking about working with the United States on climate change when it didn't seem that the agendas politically between the U.S. administration and the Canadian government were in the same space. And he said it, what mattered to him as a Canadian trying to address climate change was the U.S. market and the innovation that comes from our companies and the scale that allows you to take something, commercialize it, and have so many customers you can really take off. That's as open to Canada as ever, isn't it? I mean, we talk about the government's role here, but it's, it's the innovative private sector that is a big part of this, and our consumers too. So I think it's exactly right, and I think that Mr. Layton was exactly right. Um, I'm a big believer in an appropriate role of government, but government doing everything is not an appropriate role. And I don't think that's part of our, I know it's not part of our value system in the United States. It's usually not part of the value system in in Canada. Um, and so, you know, the government can encourage government, I think it's appropriate to use tax incentives to nudge the private sector along in making decisions that are consistent with governmental policy. Um, but in the end, most of this work will be done by the private sector. Um, and, we, and we shouldn't be panic stricken about that. That's worked pretty well for us for 100 years. All right. Well, you know, this is, um, this is 2023. There's almost always an election around the corner. And one of the things I wanted to pull out here uh, and, and get your comment on, for people who are looking at the long term, you know, they see these big investments from the Biden administration, but sometimes they say, well, is that going to continue? But something you said that really struck me is that it, these have been bipartisan uh, investments, bipartisan pieces of legislation and funding. Uh, it, in your, in your sense, and mainly, I know you're trying to talk to Canadians all the time, how, how much should we worry that this is a political agenda that's going to change in a year or two and, and look completely different? Or can we make investments and bets on this being the direction that we're going to head regardless? So I think, that's, first of all, it's a question I hear all the time. Yeah. I think it's a really important question. 
Um, I can't underwrite that no future president or administration will have the same um, significant goal mm -hmm. to advance climate change and to work together with Canada. I think Joe Biden's statements in this space are extraordinary. They're mm -hmm. not just run-of-the-mill political statements. But my answer, and the answer that I give is that today, we have unique opportunities to embed these programs in our, in our planning and in our businesses and in our industries, mm -hmm. making it extremely difficult for somebody to come along, along and unravel them. Um, you know, these are, I mean, if, if you're a company and you apply for a, and are granted a tax credit to construct a manufacturing plant where you're gonna get a credit for the next 10 years, it's unconstitutional to take that credit away. Once it's granted, it's granted. So the, the more we can lock in mm -hmm. in the current environment, the more momentum we can create, the more likely we are to be able to preserve what we're trying to do today. And I, you know, one of the things about politics, and I'm not supposed to comment about politics anymore, but <laughs> this is not partisan um, and it's not specific to any candidate. But one of the sense I've one of the things I've learned about politics is that politicians are the biggest copycats in the world. If something's working, all of a sudden it was their idea, and they embrace it. And so the more of this that we can get in place, the more progress we can demonstrate, the more friends those policies are going to have, and the less likely that anyone's going to stand up and try and unravel them. I would only disagree with you slightly. I think academics might be the biggest copycats in the world, but politicians might be up there as well. I want to thank you for coming down and, and speaking with us here today. Uh, Ambassador, we, we've always looked to you for your sensible statements, for your problem-solving approach, but, but not just in the embassy, not behind closed doors, but being out here and talking to people, talking to firms and talking to our audience here and watching us virtually uh, at the Canada Institute. Come back anytime. Well, thank you. Thanks again for the opportunity. My special thanks to the people who showed up in the room and gave me the opportunity to feel that I wasn't just talking to a camera. So thanks, thanks very much. Chris, good job on asking those questions. Uh, Ambassador came clearly with a point to make or seven points to make. Yes. And it's funny because as he was walking off stage, he said to me, Scotty, do you think I put it to rest? It being the Canadians stop whining about protectionism. And I said, no, sir, I don't think you put it to rest. Uh, but he didn't take any questions from the audience. He didn't take questions from the media. So it was just you. So how did you feel about all that? There's a lot of pressure on my shoulders. Um, you know, I was glad that there was an attempt by the ambassador, uh, you know, to come down to engage with an issue that you and I hear all the time, that companies are worried uh, on the Canadian side that all this U.S. spending, which dwarfs anything Canada can muster, is going to uh, set the playing field uh, a kilter, and it will it will hurt Canada. And I think the ambassador was clear that he that that's not the intent, and that there is uh, a desire to you know to create some opportunities for Canadian firms. Um, you may be right; there are some people who will not find that convincing, but it was at least 
an answer to the question, and I was glad that he was willing to take that criticism on, because you rarely hear that either in Parliament or in our Congress. Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. I think he used a couple of examples of how Canadian firms are accessing U.S. dollars, and but the lithium company that he gave an example, he's here at Select USA, which is a big commerce department for an investment endeavor that happens every year. Happens every year. Yeah. So that's what that's what he's doing in Washington, D.C. He normally would be in Canada. Um, but he's here for Select USA, as his predecessors have always done, it's, and other ambassadors around the world. Um, but his example was a lith- Canadian lithium company that's getting $370 million from the U.S. Department of Energy um, to build it. Was it recycling, I it think? Was, it was lithium recycling in Rochester, New York, well, as this I is, understand yeah, it. Yeah, this is the hook. So it's not like the money is going into Canada. The money is going to a Canadian firm to invest in the U.S., which... Um, I would argue is kind of the point. The U.S. is trying to incentivize manufacturing back in the U.S. And sure, that can benefit Canadians. But, you know, there's a little bit of protectionism in all of us, um, all countries around the world. And I think navigating it, figuring out how we can operate as a block, we in North America against the rest of the world, is more of the answer rather than saying, oh, it's not protectionism. It, it is, but maybe we can use it to our benefit, I guess. Well, I think I think also if we're going to achieve our climate goals, we need more of everything. And uh, Canada's been fortunate compared, say, to South Korea and some of our European allies who said we feel f- frozen out and that magnet of money is drawing our best companies to invest in the U.S. and to do things in the U.S. And, and we would have liked to see that investment in our country. And that that's fair, but that is the intent of the program, to try to draw this capacity in and over time, create more capacity, more capacity for more electric vehicles, for more uh, sustainable energy programs. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, yeah. The market would do that eventually, but maybe not on the pace that we need to achieve our net 50 goals, uh, a net zero by 2050 goals. And um, so we're intervening in the economy, not to pick winners, but to try to incentivize change at a very fast pace. And if the U.S. market, I, I quoted Jack late in one of my questions, you know, the U.S. market is a huge opportunity for Canada to scale up and to get the economies of scale you that's get right. from a big customer. And I think that's that's what we're offering. And I think it's good for Canadians if if they're trying to reach that scale to have access to this market. That's so so in that sense, I don't think that was a that that's a bad message for for our Canadian friends. I agree. And you know, Ambassador Cohen basically said a rising tide in the U.S. uh, lifts boats in Canada. I think that's true. I think he's right about that. Um, It's interesting, though, on a recent podcast that you and I hosted in Toronto, we had the Honorable Catherine McKenna, who is an an avowed environmentalist. She was a minister of the crown during the Trudeau, early Trudeau years. And she um, is quite passionate about um, the need to transition off of carbon. and But what she said in our podcast, and people can go back and, and, and look at it, or listen, I should say listen to it, but she said competition is a good thing. She said Canada and the United States are going to compete against each other. Now, she comes at it from the perspective of an athlete. She, she's all about competition Absolutely. as something to improve. So, ambas- again, Ambassador Cohen was saying, we're not being competitive with Canada. Well, even if we are, it's okay. Is yeah. my view right? Because we can. It's it's like in the SEC, Chris. SEC <laughs> is the world's greatest collegiate uh, conference there is, and well, Georgia. You're talking about the Securities and Exchange. Yeah, no, 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 right. no. That's different thing. Different thing. <laughs> Southeastern Conference. That's right. So Georgia and Alabama play football against each other, and they want to kill each other. And you know, some years uh, 
one is the national champion, others uh, Georgia is, which is always better from my point of view. Go dogs! Um, <laughs> but competition in the SEC makes every team there better, and any team in the SEC could probably kick the rear end of any team in any other conference in any given year, and that's mm-hmm. good. And North America, USMCA, is the SEC of global trade. You know, oh, I like that. There you go. I said that to a. Canadian earlier today, and he said, no Canadian is going to get that reference. You're going to have to change it to hockey. And I can't help it. We're going to have to stick with college football today, Chris. I think that's fine. We're, we're when in Rome. This is America. We're, we're on the American side of Canusa Street. We that's can talk right. about American sports. That's right. And I always like to get in a reference to the Georgia Bulldogs. So um, that, check that off your out of your bingo card, go dogs. <laughs> Excellent. But no, I think you're right. And that really is what's different about this particular period. Many of us have kind of, we go back, we have these debates about industrial policy. You'll remember before, uh, you're obviously younger, but uh, you'll remember before we had Canada US free trade even, the big fight was Canadian content on so many things. And even oh, on right. autos, the, the auto pact was in danger because Canada was doing duty drawback and trying to come up with ways to incentivize. So that competition, as long as it's transparent, parent and is aiming for the best possible outcomes, I think is a really, it's a strength of our economy. And, um, and just as we say that the existence of trade disputes doesn't mean we have a bad trade relationship. It's only a bad trade relationship if the trade disputes take over and actually start doing damage to the trade. Yeah. The fact that we're competing doesn't mean we're not friends. In fact, it means that we're you know, friendly competitors. Well, and, that's right. And that's totally legitimate. Totally legitimate. And one other thing you just reminded me of, um, you know, we had another, if I can just keep plugging our episodes, why not? <laughs> we had an episode recently with Flavio Volpe, who's with the Canadian Autopo- Automotive Parts Manufacturers. Mm-hmm. And his organization just just unveiled an all-Canadian concept electric vehicle. Project Arrow. Project Arrow. But you know what? There was no outrage in the United States. How dare you have an all Canadian? If the U.S. had done that, Canada would have lost its mind. <laughs> so <laughs> we help each other. We work together. We can compete against each other and we can win together against the world. I think that's the that's the message here. May the best product win. There we go. Amen, brother. We'll see you next time. And thank you for hosting because it's really great to be um, in the Professor Chris Sands offices on Canusa Street. There are a lot of books here, you guys. And I know that Chris has written half <laughs> them and critique the other half so anyway you guys got to see it someday we'll have to have to arrange nickel tours or something (laughs) there you go all right see you next time see you next time this podcast is brought to you by the canadian american business council and the wilson center if you like this episode help others find our show and give us a rating on apple podcasts or spotify